Hey, good evening. Glad to see everyone here this evening. We have several visitors with us. Namely, we have the McCrary family. We have Stephen with us. Um, going to be preaching for us tonight. And then we'll be worshiping again tomorrow evening at, or tomorrow afternoon at 3 and at 4. And then we'll have a regular Sunday service and then Monday evening at 7 o'clock again. So I encourage all of you, if you can, to come out and uh, worship with us every, poss- every chance you have this weekend. It's good to see the Bethays here with us. I've known them a long time. I I've, I've didn't connect the things down in Jessup, but Ogdens are here with us from Plant City. And uh, it's good to see everyone. Um, we have the Canes still here. So uh, we've got a good crowd. Uh, the only announcements that we have for sick are uh, John and Gianna decided to stay in this evening uh, for good reason. I think we all understand that. Uh, let's keep them in our prayers. Let's keep Micah and our, Micah in our prayers um, and Ezekiel. He's doing very well, but let's continue to keep him in our prayers also. Um, I think that's all the announcements. Our order of worship this evening, Paul, you've got the opening prayer this evening. Um, Jake Maxwell will be leading our song leading, and then um, Bryant is actually going to be doing the closing prayer. So let's go ahead, and if there's no more announcements, we'll go ahead and begin our worship service.
Well, it is a great honor to stand before you. I'm very thankful for the invitation to come and work with you today and uh, through the, throughout this weekend, and I look forward to meeting each of you. Uh, of course, uh, Brian and I have been friends for a while, and uh, I, I always appreciated that he, he uh, when he started working uh, you know, toward preaching full-time, like he just called me up one day and said, hey, let's hang out. And, uh, and I was like, Okay, <laughs> um, and and I was I've been so thankful to know him as a friend, and I'm I'm grateful uh, for him and, and the work here. Grateful for each one of you, and I look forward to meeting all of you as we spend time together. Uh, I do want to say, as you can probably hear, you're getting a limited version of me. We've been having some sinus stuff kind of going back and forth in the family over the past week, so I apologize if that hampers my ability to preach this week or, or throughout this, this meeting. But I'm thankful to, uh, to all of you for the opportunity to be here and to be a part of what you're doing here in this area. Uh, certainly is, is helpful uh, to see such an encouraging work going on. Um, let's look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. This is a lesson that I love to preach uh, because mainly... I love the woman who comes to Jesus so much because I know I can learn so much from her. Uh, she is someone who is downcast, who is downtrodden perhaps, uh, someone who uh, does not allow her pride, and really that's what we're, we're hitting at today, her pride is not such that it keeps her from receiving the healing that she, she so greatly needs. And I hope that what we can think of and consider here today is to, to look at just how, how wonderful this woman is from that standpoint, to see uh, what we need to get from her and what we need to get from Jesus' uh, interactions with her. Uh, pride has a number of pitfalls. When we think about pride, uh, we, we think about this sort of puffing our chest out and saying, I'm the best, I'm, I'm the best at everything. But I think it's important that we note that pride can actually take the form of something that's very subtle. Pride can be something that maybe we don't even really consider for ourselves that we have. Maybe we have a pride that uh, is, comes from our family and we appreciate the history of our family. Maybe we appreciate the history of the town we live in. And all those things can be useful and helpful. But when the pride of those things overwhelms our uh, need to get help from Jesus, that's when that pride has overwhelmed that, that, that seeking him. I want us to look in Matthew 15 and verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. His disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But, she, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed 
from that very hour. I'd like for us to pull just some very basic considerations from this passage about pride. I guess this passage may not be the first place you would look at to talk about the the subject of pride, but I just think there's so much that we can see here. And I didn't realize that uh, I'm not... It's all good. PowerPoint's a little off there for me, but on this end, I thought I would be able to see it down here, Brian, but it's all good. I know my stuff, so it's good. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I want us to note that pride will keep us from seeking and seeing Jesus. And I make that distinction because you you might say, well, Stephen, listen, if I'm seeking something, certainly I have to see it. Well, the big problem there is that I can think that I'm seeking it when maybe I'm not even really seeing the forest for the trees. So I have to be able to see Jesus. It's amazing that, you know, she asks him for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, I want to note, too, by the way, that that this is a woman, Mark tells us in his gospel, she's a Syrophoenician woman. It's fascinating to me that she calls him son of David. I don't know where she got that. I don't know if there's some knowledge that she has, some understanding of the nature of the relationship of David to Jesus. Maybe there's something there. But one thing I want to pull from this is that if we want healing, we have to seek God. God is the one that can heal us. And, of course, I'm not necessarily talking about physical maladies, but spiritual issues, the issues of our soul, the issues of our life. We know something's wrong. In Psalm 10 and verse 4, David says there, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. If we looked at our day today and through the week, how how often would we think of God? What's our total time period that we would do with that? We have apps today that we can measure that with. How How much time I'm using this program, how much I'm using this program. Well, if we had that to monitor our minds, how, how much time would we see in terms of our thinking of God and our seeking of God? We note the wicked, according to that psalm, the wicked is not doing that at all. Pride keeps us from knowing that we need him. We think we can fix all of our problems without him. And this is the influence of the adversary on the world. We face times when we have to seek outside help. We look to doctors, we look to medication and things like that. And those things have their place, don't they? We make sure that we're providing safety and security for our families. But we know that only goes so far. In our core, we have to still know the only one to protect and help us is Jesus. Maybe we have a family crisis. Well, the world will say, don't pray to God, just suffer through it. Or they may tell you to abandon your family in the middle of that crisis. And say, you've got to focus on yourself. And that's not the right solution. Problems at work, well, the world will say, don't listen to God. Fix it by fighting back. Try to hurt others the way that you've been hurt. The worst of this is when we deny that we have sin or we misuse God's grace. And we begin to believe that we're doing well. We think we have no need of God's mercy. And when we think we can't do well, that's the other part of it too. We start to doubt ourselves and we think there's no way I could do the right thing. There's no way I could do good. If we think that, we push the boundaries of God's mercy outward for our own selfish desires. We think, well, God will be okay with it. And we assume that. When in reality, we know that we can do the right thing. And we know that God can give us everything we need to do that. This woman recognizes who Jesus is. Seeing Jesus as he is 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 incredibly important. Look over at Matthew 22 with me. 
Matthew 22. <clears throat> Matthew 22. I'm going to be taking some sips of water as we're turning as well. From a water bottle that I pointed out to Brian earlier is very loud, so my apologies. Very loud water bottle. Uh, Matthew 22, and we're looking at verses 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This is at the end of a chapter where the Pharisees are just and the Sadducees are trying to trip Jesus up and, and offer him problems. And the interesting thing that Jesus does in this moment, he tells them, hey, if you wanted to look, it's there. That's essentially what he's saying to them. If the Pharisees had wanted to understand who this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is, they could have looked at his lineage. They could have understood that he indeed was a son of David and that that lineage went by. We have a great blessing, by the way, of two different genealogies for Jesus. Some people theorize that one is for Mary's side of the family and one is for Joseph's, but it could possibly be in both terms Joseph's. We don't really know. But the great thing that that tells us is, the great thing that shows us in the Gospels is, the Pharisees had all the tools to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, yet they denied that. They, they didn't want to use that. They didn't, want to look, didn't even want to look at it. And often that's where we are. We often will blind ourselves to the true picture that Jesus wants us to see of himself. It's fascinating. You know, Catholic imagery will paint Jesus in a very defeated way. Constant suffering. I remember uh, I went to a church down in South San Antonio once when I was younger. Was not thinking, it was not in the right way, but I just decided I wanted to go in there and pray. I was living a very sinful life at the time. But they had this huge statue of Jesus, and he just, he just looks all defeated looking up. And I'm just thinking, this doesn't make sense, you know? I, I understood from that aspect of like Jesus had to suffer. I get that. And that's imagery that we, we need to think of. But I think also we need to view Jesus the way the prophets talk about him. We need to view Jesus as he's shown in Revelation chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 6, Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We have to understand Jesus is a powerful figure. He is not a defeated figure that is constantly suffering throughout time. Yes, we understand through the New Testament that he... he he gave himself for us, and we understand that, that that image of his suffering, it must be on our minds and on our hearts. But we need to remember he is also the conquering king. And so we need to see him as he is, as he expresses himself. 
So pride keeps us from seeing that. We, we don't see Jesus for who he, he says he is or who we think he is. Pride also will keep us from admitting problems. Very often what we understand in, uh, in our lives is that God... Okay, there we go. God wants us to uh, seek his help. And this woman knows enough, right? I mean, I, again, I don't know her background. I don't know what she was raised with or what she knows. But she knows enough that she needs to seek the help of Jesus. And we have to be honest with ourselves about our own shortcomings. I don't have it all figured out. I, I can't. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we, we end up internalizing our problems until they eat us alive. We internalize our issues. There is a time, of course, for us to examine and contemplate for ourselves. We need to remember that we're part of a great spiritual family. We're part of a kingdom of people who want to help each other out. And so we don't have to suffer in silence. We don't have to suffer in solitude. When we have a problem, we should open up to our brethren. Now, maybe not all problems are like that. Maybe certain problems we open up to brothers or sisters that we trust and that have earned our trust, and we know we can lean on them. It takes time to establish those relationships. And the sad fact is that so many of our brothers and sisters, they may go through their whole life and never establish those proper relationships with their own brethren. And it's a sad situation. We need to be more like this woman. She's honest about where she is. In uh, 2 Corinthians 6, turn there with me, 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, the, the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is just amazing how Paul is able to open himself up in such a way that you would really think that would be uh, dangerous for himself, right? Because he's just being so open-hearted, and that's exactly what he says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Now, that's kind of shaming when you really think about it, the way that Paul is talking to them. He talks to them as if they're children. You be open also. There's a fairness aspect here. I've opened myself up. You need to open yourself up. Often, again, we understand God doesn't want us to be walled off from our brothers and sisters. James 4 and verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So often what this comes down to is just simply the wrong priority. Our pride, especially men, I think it's easy for us to think, there's nothing wrong with me, I got no problem, I got this figured out. When maybe we just need to open up and understand, even for ourselves, that I may not always have this wrapped up. I may not always have the right answer for things. But I know my Lord has the right answer. And so I trust in him and I trust in my brethren. This woman knows <clears throat> that Jesus can help. She knows that he can help her. 
In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? For he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You know, when we're proud, we ally ourselves with other people who are prideful. We, we, we go along on the same road with those in this world who will not bend, who will not budge in terms of understanding what their soul needs. In the end, we believe we don't need God because we have the world. Have you ever met someone like that who has maybe worldly friends that are just very close to them? Nothing wrong with having worldly friends that are very close to you. But the problem comes when we begin to trust in that support and that, that support mechanism more than we do our own brethren. And we have to be careful about that. Psalm 40 and verse 4, Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Proverbs 15.25 says the Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. All throughout scripture, so many examples like that, right? Where, where you have those who are the lowly, the outcast, the overtrodden, like this woman here, who are magnified, who are brought high by the Lord. We might note also that pride will keep us from being persistent. If this woman was proud, she wouldn't have kept asking Jesus. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody and they, they act like, you know, they didn't hear you? I mean, and you think about that, that's a pretty insulting situation to be in, right? Doesn't it feel insulting? Hey, I'm talking to you. <laughs> and then maybe that you, you know, like after the second or third time, you know they're intentionally ignoring you. And at that point, I mean, frankly, I think just about any of us would, would understand it's reasonable to not keep trying to maintain communication with this person. And Jesus' actions could have been misunderstood by this woman, but God be praised, she is more humble than that. And we ought to be more like her. There are going to be times when it seems like God's not saying anything to us. It's going to be times where we feel like God is not really acting in our life and that we're just sort of flailing around. And we need to understand that God keeps his promises. And he is expecting us to be persistent in this way. A couple of examples we might turn to, but especially I think the more powerful one is in Luke 8, 18. I've got Luke 11 up there as well, but I'd like for us to go to Luke 18. Similar situation to what we have here. This woman is, you know, in Jesus' parable, is really, uh, really pushing to be heard. Uh, Luke 18, verse 1. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Now, that, let's just stop right there and appreciate that. That Jesus is telling us something, telling them something, so that we should always pray and not lose heart. You see, pride, again, will keep getting in the way of that and keep us from praying like we should. Because, again, we think we've got it all figured out. Uh, and especially in terms of this, it's, it's not, we're going to pray it maybe once. And we talk about with prayer, by the way, you know, we wonder maybe sometimes, why did, 
Why did Jesus want us to pray daily for our daily bread, right? Well, it's because he wants us to know that we're dependent upon him. That everything we are, everything we have is dependent upon him. So same, same thought here. Verse 2, he says, There's a certain city, there was in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God, nor regard man. <clears throat> now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. Let me pause there as well. Isn't that a cry we hear a lot today? We want justice, right? This woman is calling for justice from her adversary. Verse 4, And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God, here's the powerful part, shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Faith, in many ways, could be defined as persistence. We're holding on. We know that the Lord will take care of these things even if we don't see the solution here in this world. And that's part of the problem with people's idea of justice nowadays. We tend to think of justice, or certain people out there, tend to think of justice in a way of, of vengeance. That the only time I'm going to get justice is when I see the person that hurt me hurt more. And let me tell you, that is a prideful attitude. That's not the attitude that's a godly attitude. The godly attitude says, this person's done me wrong, but I'm going to pray for their good. I'm going to hope things get better in their life so they understand who the Lord is and their heart turns. I'm not saying that we take them a, you know, take them a pie or something like that, but I'm just basically saying we've got to have a heart that says, even if you hurt me, I'm still going to want good for you. Even if you damage me, I'm still going to want... And let me say this as well, though. Can we not cry out for justice? Yes, we can. We cry out to justice to God, and he is the one that meets it out. You don't carry out that justice. You don't carry out that vengeance. You know what we are? One of the best examples I've ever heard of this, uh, I stole it from Brother Harold Carswell. Uh, he works in, uh, in Troy, Alabama. <clears throat> But he said, you know, when we think about judging, people say we shouldn't judge. Okay, but if you're talking about, you know, if you're talking about be, me being in the judgment seat, swinging the gavel, and, 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 you know, giving out the punishment, 100%, I'm not in that place. God's in that place. But in many ways, we as Christians are called upon to be the jury. We're to be the ones that look at the evidence, come up with a conclusion, and inform the world of the verdict. So it's in our place to say about this person that's done us wrong to recognize that and fess up to it. It doesn't mean we have to keep our mouths silent about it, but we give it up to the Lord to handle in these ways. This woman, interestingly, again, no, no answer from Jesus yet, right? Uh, and in fact, one thing we might notice here is that in the meantime, I don't think I had this on my PowerPoint, but you might notice too in verse 23, what do the disciples do? Send her away. Dismiss her. 
We're done with this. This is a seraphonation. Who has time for seraphonations? No. She comes and she worships him. She's fallen on her, her, her knees, essentially. She's given us great appreciation for him, spending time in adoration of him. Proper and true worship is indeed an act of humility. Again, back in Psalm 10, this time verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. We need to remember that as Christians, in humility, we will give up many things to worship God. Tonight, all of us here have given up our time. In some cases, and really in, in most all of our cases, we've, we've given up money. We spent some gas coming here, didn't we? Maybe effort. Are there other things that you needed to do tonight, but you decided to come here? Focus. Our focus may need to be in certain parts of our life, but you decided to sacrifice that tonight to come here. And that's not on my account. That's on the Lord's account, ultimately. Maybe we sacrifice in our humility friendships to worship God. We have family, perhaps, or friends that have abandoned the Lord, and our heart goes out to you on that account because we have, I believe we all have suffered those things. Someone says, well, look, she only worships him so that her daughter is healed. And let me say, maybe so. Maybe that's why she's worshiping him in that moment. So what? Don't we worship God in some way to get something out of it? That doesn't mean that it's some sort of transaction necessarily. But we worship God because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our sacrifice. And anything I get out of it that will be helpful to me, and I know that it will be helpful to me, are we doing it for our glory or for his? That's really the main question here. Psalm 18:27. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Pride also keeps us from receiving blessings. Receiving blessings. This is really where the rubber meets the road, right? Because he says at first, I wasn't sent except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she worships him. Lord, help me. Being, that, being persistent. But he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now I want to note that her being called a little dog, how would that fly in today's society? If I called somebody a little dog? I do want to say, I think the meaning of the term is actually a term of endearment to some degree. This is not just some street dog that's just out there and worthless, some, some stray. The definition is a house dog or a lap dog in contrast to a dog of the street or farm, but also used with no diminutive force at all. So it's a sense that Jesus is calling her something from the standpoint of the one who's waiting to get what's left after everything. And when you think about it, yeah, certainly in a, in a modern vernacular, this would be an offensive thing to call somebody. But I'll tell you, when we understand who God is, and we understand who Jesus is, don't we want whatever we can get? Aren't we pleased with the scraps? I mean, I don't have to be number one to the kingdom. The apostles got tripped up over that. Men who had spent years with Jesus tripped up over who was going to be the greatest. And yet this woman, this Syrophoenician, she outshines them in that way. 
even if Jesus wasn't intending to be critical of this woman or where she came from, we have examples of inspired men using harsh criticism to spur change in the hearts of others. Remember in Titus chapter 1 when, when Paul quotes the, 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 the Cretans, one of their own prophets? He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, that, again, that is antithetical to what we typically think of in terms of, for example, evangelism nowadays, right? We want to try to be careful. We want to try to make sure everything is, is carefully said. And I, I'm all for us having wisdom in how we reach out. But there comes a time when maybe we do need to use something that might seem hostile or uh, insulting if it's just simply the truth. I don't think Paul was saying anything wrong there. But I do say, if we were to switch this woman with most anyone living today, it might be at this point that many would just give up. Those who had persisted through being ignored and, and you know, had, had gone through all that, certainly at this point, this would be the time, listen, you're going to call me a dog? Okay, I'm done. I, I'm out. And, and sometimes it seems like people love to be offended in, in some ways. But people... People often are offended in our day and time over some things I think that are important, but maybe other things that aren't quite as important. And I really think that if we keep our mind and heart focused on God and not puff ourselves up and build ourselves up into that prideful state, then perhaps things would be better. Proverbs 28:25: He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. So pride will keep us from seeing the truth about a situation. We will allow little things to offend us to the point that we miss out on these great blessings. And she does not take offense. The Lord regards the lowly, according to Psalm 138 and verse 6. I would suggest to you, if you find yourself offended by someone who is speaking the truth to you, I would consider... Am I offended more by wickedness or am I offended more by the truth? It's really an important mental uh, exercise to go through and to really ask ourselves, what does it take to offend me? And what will I go through to avoid that offense? Because we all know as Christians that sin is what should be offending us. Sin is what should be an affront to us. And, of course, we work with that and we work through it. But the more we hold on to our pride and we relive our offenses, the greater they'll become. You see, the interesting thing about this is we are offended by sin, but we need to be careful we don't thrive through that offense of sin. Because what that will do is that begins to make us hate people that we've never even met before, which makes absolutely no sense. Did Jesus hate this woman by calling her a little dog? I don't think so. Because it's her in insistence and persistence that pays off. The sad thing is, if your offenses become your best friends, then you're paying the highest price. You're the one that is offended. Although even the one that provided that offense might have moved on completely. There's a number of things, that, again, that we could think of here. But I want to move on to, in that pride keeps us from having faith. 
Pride keeps us from having faith. The lack of offense means this woman has a great faith. And Jesus emphasizes this. Great is your faith, he says. How often did he say that to the Pharisees? How often did he say that to his own apostles? Not very much. I think the closest we get is in Matthew 16 with Peter. God will often emphasize the faith of Gentiles in Scripture. And it's really a beautiful thing when you note that and we think about that. Uh, when we look back at 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, Second Kings 5, please. Remember when Naaman came to Elisha? And uh, it, it's kind of fascinating when you see this because, you know, Naaman at first, he kind of objects to this. And Naaman himself is offended by the fact that Elisha didn't come out to meet him. But there's this great statement that he has after he's been healed. He returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Naaman had great faith. And you could object and say, Well, see, he, should have, he shouldn't have been offended about going to the Jordan River. Well, maybe not, but the man's a Gentile. Can we, can we not, like, give him some space here? Can we not just, like, because here's the thing, like, God's own people who were handed all these laws and the truth and given so much failed so spectacularly. And yet this man, who hasn't been given anything, he almost went back home, didn't he? And let me suggest, maybe it's not so much Naaman's faith, maybe it was the faith of his servant that was working in that way. He said, Lord, if he told you to go do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? So he thinks about it, and he goes, and he's healed. In Luke 7, Luke chapter 7, you, you may remember this passage. Luke chapter 7. With a centurion. Remember, he, he, had, he had, comes to Jesus. And he says, please, you know, heal my servant. My servant's uh, uh, going to die, essentially. But he decides he's going to go with him. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't, you don't have to come with me. Uh, and and he, he demonstrates an understanding of who Jesus is. He says, listen, I, I, I'm a man in authority. I don't dirty my hands with most of the things I do. I delegate. I send someone else to do it. And I know that you can do the same thing, is essentially what he says to him. I say to one, uh, to go, he goes. To another, come, he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And in verse 9, Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him and turned aside and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, can you imagine Peter and James and John and the others standing next to him? What did they think at this moment? He recognizes something in this Gentile's faith. Acts 10 and verse 4, we could talk about Cornelius and his great faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 31, Rahab the harlot 
is called out in Hebrews 11 and said, By faith she did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So our God has a history of looking at those even outside the realm of what we might call of, of the saved and having, having an eye of mercy and, 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 and appreciation for the faith that they do have. And I believe that God still providentially puts people into con, uh, uh, communication and connection with those that have those hearts, those honest hearts that want to look and, and see what God's left behind here. Why did God honor all these people? I would suggest that because they were the exception to the rule. When we think of true humility, we can see its relation to holiness. It's in many ways a separate aspect. It's the exception. We don't find humility everywhere. Yeah, you can find somebody who thinks of themselves as humble. So it says, oh, I'm the most humble person in this room. And you know immediately where they are. We know that most in this world are going to be puffed up with pride and that the humble will be small in number. But God makes the humble strong. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. There's a great temptation that Satan will try to lay upon us and in front of us to say, Hey, if you're humble about this, they'll walk all over you. If you pull back on this point, they're going to walk all over you. We, we tend to think that if we are not puffed up and pushed through and, and hurt people on the way to where we need to get, that the only alternative is to slink back and to do nothing. God says there's another way. You be strong in me. You trust in what I say. And I'll build you up. It doesn't matter what anybody else gives to you doesn't matter what you get from anybody else in this world. What are you getting from God? That's what this woman was thinking of. Learn humility and you can be the exception. And this woman's faith leads to her daughter's healing. We know if this woman had not been so humble, her daughter would not have been healed. Right? I, I, I hope we can kind of agree with that. Proverbs 18.12, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. Pride leads to nothing but ruin. Humility leads to honor and glory in the kingdom. Psalm 149 and verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let me suggest that if I'm not humble, I'm not working with his people. If I find in my heart some aspect of pride that needs to be stopped, then I need to start taking steps right now to stop that pride from welling up within me. Again, I want to be clear. If we have a lot of pride and appreciation for our family history, if we have pride in our work, in the school we go to, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to look at it as a whole and understand that all those things are not eternal. And I'm not, I can't trust in my family to save my soul. I, I, I can think of a lot of good things that my parents and my grandparents have taught me. But I know they can't save my soul. Only God can do that. And so... That humility is part of trusting 
that even though I don't see the things I may want to see in this lifetime, I know that he's leading me to a place. He's leading me to a place where I can be with him forever and dwell in eternal perfection. So tonight as we think about these things, I, I just I encourage you to consider these things. Uh, think about the words of Jesus as we sing together. Think about your life. Think about your, your heart and where you are. If you need to respond to the gospel call, please do so while we stand and sing.